Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I'm your host for episode 28 on February 11th, 2020. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and now LinkedIn and Pinterest, too. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612 Three six seven six zero five two. Well, it has been since May 2011 since I've done a podcast. I learned that it was hard doing these and also working full-time at both Gunderson Air and Lifelink 3. It is great to be back, however, and I have a number of podcasts that I am planning. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Dan Hankins who, before retiring three years ago, was the medical director for Gold Cross Ambulance and Mayo One Air Ambulance, now all called Mayo Ambulance. Dan also just completed a three-year appointment as the public representative on the board of the Association of Air Medical Services. He also served as the AIMS president, now called chair, from 2009 through 2011. Dr. Hankins is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he attended the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., graduating with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1970. He attended medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, graduating in 1974. His internship and residency in internal medicine was completed at the University of Minnesota Hospitals in Minneapolis, and his first position was an associate staff physician at the St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center, now called Health Partners Regions Hospital. Dan joined the Air Force and served in Oklahoma from 1977 through 1979. Dr. Hankins served as a staff physician at St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center until 1990 and also served as the co-medical director and medical director for LifeLink 3 from 1985 through 1990. From there, Dan moved to Rochester, Minnesota and became a senior associate consultant with the Department of Emergency Trauma at the Mayo Clinic. He also was an assistant professor of emergency medicine. Dr. Hankins has extensive experience in emergency medicine, air medical transport, governing oversight, and several associations, including the chair of the Minnesota Emergency Medical Services Regulatory Board, founding member of the Minnesota Association of EMS Physicians, and the chair on the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems. Welcome, Dan, and thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Ed. It's always great to talk about EMS, and that's been one of the loves of my life. So, Yeah, I, uh, your background is just uh, tremendous, all the different things that you've done uh, in EMS and air medical. And, of course, we're uh, interested in uh, both those topics, especially the air medical piece. But I always like to get some background uh, on people, too. Um, 
you're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I think specifically the South Hills area, Pittsburgh. Uh, did both sides of your family come from Western Pennsylvania? Are they still there? Oh, a few, but most of my most of the generation before me has passed. So, um, actually, all my siblings live in Northern Virginia now. Oh, really? So you were um, you went uh, did your undergraduate work at George Washington University uh, in D.C. What attracted you to uh, uh, G.W.? Well, it was in the late '60s, uh, and D.C. was very uh, very interesting place at that time. It was very interesting to go to college at the height of the Vietnam War yes. in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was uh, it was kind of an intoxicating time in more than one way. Yeah, just being in D.C. at the at the time. Did you have other relatives that had gone to G.W.? Or? Nope, nope. I was one of the first uh, people in my family went to college. I came from a very blue-collar family. Huh. So, but, steel uh, mills, they all worked in the steel mills. Yep. I, uh, uh, I think I've told you I'm from western Pennsylvania, too, and uh, my grandfather worked uh, in Youngstown uh, oh, yeah. in steel. So. Um, I think it was Youngstown Sheet and Tube. Um, so, um, were you pre-med right from the get-go at, at uh, G-Dub? Or, uh, did I was, and uh, I, uh, I majored in anthropology. My BA is in anthropology, actually, which kind of gives me an uh, ecumenical worldview, I think. Um, no, so I... And what is that? What do you do with the BA in anthropology except probably go to medical school? <laughs> so you took all the requirements to, to do that. And, uh, yes. And then you did you apply to a number of medical schools? Um, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, having gone through this with my son now, who's a chief resident of psychiatry at, at a New York Presbyterian, oh. uh, it's much, much different now. I mean, I applied to three medical schools and then all three. I think he applied to. 30-some medical schools, so it's a very different world now. Yes, right. So you uh, you came back to Pittsburgh at the medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, graduating, I think, I believe, in 74. Uh, were you glad to be back in western Pennsylvania? Yes. I mean, uh, Pittsburgh has always been kind of a, a hotbed of uh, emergency services and EMS, and actually when I was in medical school, that was before... Emergency medicine had a presence in Pittsburgh. Uh, their residency will start to start to later, uh, but I did get exposed to Peter Sapper, the anesthesiologist, who was one of the really prime leaders of uh, resuscitation early on, uh, and that was that was I think uh, had an impact on me. Um, and just Pittsburgh, you know, the first time I had emergency medicine experience was in 1972 when I was a student at Mercy Hospital in Pittsburgh, and that kind of uh, thrilled me. I thought that was a fascinating experience. So and that's how it began. Had, had you, when you started medical school, I, I, I know you had told me that, I, I said, uh, did you always want to be a physician? And I believe you said uh, yes for some, um, some time. Um, was there a certain specialty when you first went into medical school that you were looking at? Well, I, I went into internal medicine. I did my residency in internal medicine because in 1973, when I was looking at residencies, there were, I think, only one or two emergency medicine residencies in the country, and yes. people didn't think about it. And even, like I said, Pittsburgh did not have one, and they had one of the premier emergency medicine residencies. 
an EMS system in the in the uh, country. Um, so it was the formative time of uh, EMS and emergency medicine. So when I was in medical school, the the movie MASH and the program MASH were out. Right. Just came out, right. and so did emergency with Johnny and Roy. Yeah. So it's like it was meant to be. So that that influenced you. Oh yes. I learned yeah. a lot of medicine from Hawkeye Pierce. <laughs> That's great. Um, you moved uh, uh, to, Mi- to Minneapolis, and uh, I think, as you said, you did your internship and residency uh, in internal medicine at the University of Minnesota. What was that like being in Minnesota and at the U, as everyone calls it up here? Well, I looked at a number of uh, northern tier uh, academic programs like Syracuse and Ann Arbor and Madison and Minneapolis. And Minneapolis was, as a city, close to Pittsburgh about in size. And and it was just a very nice city. And that was actually when I was looking at residencies was the uh, was the issue of time came out with Wendell Anderson on the cover holding up a walleye. So, <laughs> so I think it was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. So um, any... Uh, Remembrances from uh, being in re- residency? That uh, uh, well, it was a very, very good residency because there was so much pathology that came into the U, the Big State U. Actually, uh, in my residency, I was one of the few people in the state of Minnesota who've actually seen an active case of uh, rabies, human rabies, and um, also uh, I think they had four or five cases of tetanus. So it was. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. So I, I was very interested on your uh, resume that you sent me that uh, you had spent uh, two years. I've known you for a number of years. I never realized that you uh, spent time in the Air Force from 1977 to 79. Uh, where were you located and what types of things did you do? Well, I was stationed in uh, Altus, Oklahoma at Altus Air Force Base, and uh, which is about 100 miles from any place. And, um, well, I did, I did a, I was the only internal medicine specialist on base. So I did, uh, basic care for the usual internal medicine type problems and took care of a lot of, uh, military retirees. Um, so it was good, but, um, I also worked a lot at Comanche County General in Lawton, Oklahoma, which was about 50 miles away. And that was a very active, uh, emergency system, and that kind of picked my interest more in emergency medicine, and I think that's one of the reasons I eventually went into emergency medicine, which was, of course, multifactorial. Was that a Native American clinic? Uh, no, it was the, the county hospital in Comanche County. Oh, and, I see. Uh, but there was, a, yeah, there was a reservation there of, uh, I think, Comanche and Cherokee, and um, and also Fort Sill was there, the big uh, Army Army uh, artillery base, so it was a uh, very active uh, ED. Yeah. Did um, it? Did you join voluntarily in the military? Had you wanted to, or did you have a, a scholarship? Well, that you're paying back? my choice was either help them pay for medical school, or we were going to have to eat cat food. So, so I chose <laughs> uh, I chose join the military so that uh, so they could help pay for. The last year or two of medical school. Yes, right. Okay. Was that through the National Health Service Corps? 
No, it was, uh, there's a program, I'm, a, I'm not sure it's still called the same thing, the Health Profession Scholarship okay. Program from the military. Uh, and my, my dad had been in the uh, Army Air Forces in World War II as a top-turned gunner in B-17, and my uncle was in the Air Force in Korea, so kind of the Air Force was the Where you wanted to natural go. choice for me, yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's switch over a little to um, uh, air medicine. Uh, when, how did you get involved uh, in the air, air medical transport? Well, when I first started out in my full-time emergency medicine uh, practice at St. Paul Ramsey in St. Paul, which was the trauma center for East Metro, uh, now it's called Regions Hospital. Um, so I started doing EMS along with that in 1981, um, which was actually still in the very early formative years of EMS. It wasn't long before that that uh, funeral homes did the EMS system, so it was a process of evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and we got involved, St. Paul Ramsey got involved with an organization called BMRA, Biomedical Research Associates, which had this concept of maybe we should have critical care facility transports uh, initially by ground uh, so that we can give people adequate care during transport. And that really uh, kind of influenced me as far as I think my EMS mantra has always been right patient, right crew, right vehicle, right destination. Mm -hmm. um, um, so in BMRA was very innovative and they did um, ground critical care and then in 1984 they started looking at setting up a helicopter system um, and uh, we worked with consortium at that time to uh, to get a a um, helicopter program going along with the ground and also Pickford. And I think there were three hospitals to start with. Now I think Lifelink has 25 hospitals or something like that in the consortium. Um, so it was just a very very interesting beginning on the ground floor of development of air medicine in Minnesota. And yeah. The three big programs, the three big programs in Minnesota at that time, North, Mayo, and Lightning, all started within a few months of each other. So it was kind of a big decision for the whole state. Yeah, it had to do with the, I think, certificate of need uh, at the time. But all three were in the mid '80s, and I think Mayo was the one that had the uh, certificate um, initially. Um, it, say a little bit more about BRMA. BRMA was sort of the precursor to LifeLink uh, 3. Uh, were there other programs like that in the country at the time? Um, well, I wasn't aware, and of course I was uh -huh. uh, I was uh, kind of a neophyte at that time um, in my youth as uh, EMS, so um, I was not aware of any. But, I mean, they did so many innovative things with... Uh, vascular monitoring and ventilators and uh, balloon pumps and all kinds of stuff that uh, no one had thought about before then. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it's a very interesting history as um, I think most people know both, uh, you know, both of us have spent uh, time at uh, LifeLink, me just uh, recently retiring last year, but um, it, uh, very interesting concept, you know, at, at that time for hospitals to, to come together uh, to do things at the time of the uh, 
formation, it was the three hospitals, Abbott, Northwestern, uh, you know, uh, St. Paul, uh, Ramsey, uh, and uh, the University of uh, Minnesota. Uh, now that's up to 10 hospital systems, and um, it's about 55-plus hospitals now. Okay. Again. Yeah, so yeah, they've grown quite a bit. Uh, great program. Um, you... Uh, uh, from there, you had uh, a lot of experience. You were co-medical director working uh, with, uh, is it Dr. Champion? Um, uh, Dr. Brian Campion and, yeah, Dr. R.J. Frasconi, right? Yes, and then uh, R.J. then um, came, he, uh, you were the medical director of LifeLink 3, and then uh, he became the medical director. What, what Tell us a little bit, before we get into that, tell us a little bit more about your experience with, with LifeLink uh, once the, the, the company was formed after BMRA. Well, it was, it was uh, exhilarating to uh, do run reports with them because I've always thought a medical director needs to be very active and give uh, oversight to improve care and also for quality assurance. Um, Jim Page, who was the founder of Gems Magazine, uh, once said, and I never thought he said a truer statement, that the only true quality assurance is the medical director at the scene. So that's true for ground. And I also would, uh, once I got down to uh, the mail, I would uh, sometimes meet helicopter things too. Um, I think RJ and I did do a few uh, intercepts with Life like three helicopter back way back when in the eighties. Once we got a vehicle, chase vehicle. Yeah. Um, so because uh, the runs were also always incredibly interesting with Life Link, uh, very complex. Um, I've always loved uh, oversight of critical care runs because um, the care is just awesome. I mean, the crews were so good at what they did, and that's been true at both Life Link and Mail. And uh, it was just great to go over runs with them and just tweak things that, you know, maybe next time you could do this uh, instead. Yeah. Because you were, you were involved early on. I know uh, BRMA had a, um, what, a fixed wing uh, program, too, and then that was all taken over by LifeLink. Did, were you uh, heavily involved in doing all the protocols and setting it all up? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, to me, uh, I mean, protocols are important, um, but protocols are just guidelines. So if there's something extraordinary going on, then um, I would always back the crews up if they did what seemed to be the right thing at the time. Um, uh, and that was that was one of my purposes of my director, to just secure quality assurance of the runs. And uh, yeah, could you have done things different? Uh, most of the time, it was not. They, they didn't have to do anything different. But, uh, and did you attend board meetings then? Oh, yeah. At that time? I attended lots of uh, LifeLink board meetings, yeah. Yep, yep. One, one of my other uh, favorite things about LifeLink is I actually did the first trip on their first helicopter, the S-76A. We were doing a, an outreach meeting in Wisconsin, and uh, Mike Finch and I were out there. Mike Finch was a critical care nurse, and uh, a child came in the ER who needed transport to uh, regions, or to St. Paul Ramsey, and uh, Mike and I said, okay, Mike and I will do it, so we did the transport, and that was how 
got started. That's how it all started, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I think I might have told you this. I Before I came up here, I was putting together a program uh, for Fairfax Hospital, and uh, Air Methods was the uh, air operator uh, at LifeLink, and uh, uh, their uh, CEO at the time uh, brought me up to uh, St. Paul, and I actually uh, saw the offices of LifeLink uh, at the airport there and saw, saw the S-76, so uh, goes, uh, history goes back. It's a small, small industry. That's for sure. Uh, EMS is a very shallow gene pool of them. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way. So uh, you uh, then moved to Mayo. What uh, was the uh, reason? Was a good opportunity for you? Um, yeah, there was there were several reasons. Um, uh, one of them was romantic, and one of them was the fact that uh-huh. I was hoping to get on the ground floor of. Uh, a, emergency medicine residency at Mayo, which eventually did happen, although mm-hmm. maybe not as soon as I wished it would, but it did happen. And uh, so that was, I think that was the main reason, because really emergency medicine was the only major specialty that Mayo didn't have a residency in back in the 90s. Um, so it was, it was just kind of a opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tell us a little bit about that. It, it is interesting. You know, I, um, I was at uh, Duke University, and I, I think when we talked prior, I, I, I was surprised, too, that they didn't have a residency program. So tell us about that. Why would a big academic center not have uh, a residency in emergency medicine, or why were they later? Well, I think um, I think probably had to do with did emergency medicine have a unique body of knowledge? Um, that that had a place in in uh, an academic medical center. Uh, I mean, how many how many resident how many surgeons or other specialties did moonlighting in emergency medicine when they were residents? Probably most of them did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that a lot of the specialties felt that anybody could do emergency medicine. There was no unique body of knowledge. Uh, well, obviously that changed once emergency medicine became board certifiable, and uh, they realized that, the big academic centers realized that you had to have emergency medicine as one of your primary uh, specialties. Um, so I think that was the thinking, and it finally came around, and, you know, I think the big academic centers now realize that you really need quality emergency medicine out there in order to get well-stabilized patients into the tertiary centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why transport is so important, because you need to continue that level of care uh, for a critical care transport, uh, whether it's trauma or, or medical. So you were on the, on the ground floor then at Mayo informing the, the residency program. Was that uh, difficult to get the slots to do that? Um, no, it was uh, actually once uh, Mayo committed, then it was it was wonderful when it went. Uh, and the same thing happened, I think, at St. Paul Ramsey too, or Regions. Um, you know, after I left, Regions is when they started their emergency medicine program. And you know, the the thing about emergency medicine residents to me is that they're the best and the brightest, and they they were always a challenge. And that's why I like working in academic medical center because. Um, 
the residents challenge me to provide good care and to keep up with my knowledge base. And I, I had the joy of teaching Lincoln Medicine residents about EMS, mm-hmm. which is, which is a, a big part of emergency medicine since it's, it's the extension of emergency medicine to the streets and to the air. Um, so it was a great pleasure teaching uh, emergency medicine residents about EMS. And I'm sure, I'm sure Dr. Frasconi feels the same way up at Regions along with his, uh, his junior medical directors. Right. What did Mayo have a um, EMS fellowship too? Did they develop one? Actually, uh, Mayo is has just gotten approved for an EMS fellowship, and mm-hmm. Mayo is backing it. And uh, excellent. I think they're going to start their EMS fellowship um, another year or two. Yeah, it's been nice when I, when I was at LifeLink. We had uh, some of the fellows uh, come over uh, from Hennepin, so it was uh, really nice to see people that are really committed uh, to uh, EMS. Um, and one of the, yeah, one uh, corollary to that is this year, the EMS fellow at uh, Regions was a Mayo emergency medicine resident, and the EMS fellow at Hennepin was an emergency medicine resident from Mayo. Yeah. Excellent. So um, you had told me a little story when you left uh Lifelink, uh, as the medical director, you had said something to the board about uh, Dr. Frasconi uh, taking over. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I introduced RJ with because we we had been interns together in 1975 at St. Paul Ramsey, so we'd known each other for a long time. And uh, so I said to the board, "Well, you know, Dr. Frasconi was a great guy. He'll be a great medical director. He's very knowledgeable and." Bill Peterson, who was an uh, administrator from, actually, I think he was knowledge, think about it, I think Bill was a doctor from Abbott, who uh, raised his hand and said, uh, so, Dr. Hankins, if uh, Dr. Frasconi is such a great guy, why have we had you as a medical director? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's, that's funny. I think Dr. Frasconi tells that story, too. So oh, yeah. it's, oh, yeah. it, it's, it's great. Uh, you two, I know, have been excellent you know really good friends uh, for uh, a long time and uh, I, I think when you uh, you know if you google both your names you find uh, you know uh, pages and pages of things that uh, you've done in EMS or publications so that's that's great that you've kept that friendship since 1975 that's wonderful oh, and one of the other unique things is that you know the two of us are also friends Longtime friends with Pat Lilja, who was the medical director at North Aircare for so many years. Yes. We've always had a very congenial, agreeable uh, relationship and did a lot of things together to establish EMS guidelines and protocols in Minnesota, as well as the MSRB. Right. You mentioned EMSRB. Uh, tell us what that stands for and uh, what your involvement was with the EMSRB. So in the 1980s, now I might have some of the years wrong. In the 1980s, EMS was under the Department of Health. And the Department of Health, as in most states, is very large in Minnesota with a lot of different responsibilities. And we thought EMS was being ignored because it was kind of like a tiny little department down the corner of the structure diagram. Um, So we got together with a lot of other EMS people in the state, and O.J. Doyle, a lobbyist, 
uh, for EMS and establish the uh, Emergency Medical Services Regulatory Board so that EMS would have a standalone oversight group from the state, um, which would which would then not be a very small part of Department of Health. And we succeeded in doing that actually on the first year we tried. And I, I think that was 86. I, mean, I can't, sometimes the dates get me nowadays. Sure. But uh, it might have been a little later than that. But it was really a successful thing to do. And we were, it's very unusual to get something like that passed the first year that you try it. But we did. Because when we went to uh, meetings at the state capitol with the legislators, uh, we had police, fire, and EMS, as well as doctors. And uh, kind of the conjoint approach really made a difference as far as the legislators went. Was, did the Department of Health at the time put up any resistance to doing that? Uh, yes, they did, because they didn't want to lose the oversight of EMS. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought it belonged to the Department of Health, and uh, we convinced the legislators at that time that, no, that's not a good way to run EMS. It, I've always said EMS is the redheaded bastard stepchild of healthcare, care. <laughs> right. And... Um, so it was a way to, I think, legitimize EMS, and I think it's led to much better oversight in the state. Were there other states that did this? Was there a model for it, or did you all come up with it yourself? We, uh, I, at that time in the 80s, I'm not aware that it was being done anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but uh, I thought we were doing doing this kind of uniquely in our state and um, because EMS needed to be legitimized and also have EMS people running it, not people who didn't know what EMS was all about. Yep. What were some of the big issues during your tenure? Because you, you served as chair. Um, oh, I think it was um, trying to get control of... Uh, of oversight uh, to make sure, because one of the things about small ambulance services in Minnesota, which like many states are mostly volunteer, is that um, the medical oversight was spotty. Uh, there was one apocryphal story that one ambulance service had had a medical director who had been dead for two years. Um, so wow. medical oversight needed to be made more formal, and so we did things to do that. Uh, financing, trying to finance uh, EMS systems, which were on a shoestring. Uh, volunteers have always been a problem with the bulk of EMS because, you know, as you know, BLS covers most of the territory in the state, whereas ALS covers the big population centers. Right. So the so the vast areas of the state that were covered by volunteer services were were being ignored, and they had issues with trying to get people to cover the shifts and uh, training issues, so it was a way to standardize training around the state and try and help them as far as finances and staffing goes. Gotcha. One of the things that was interesting for me coming from out of state uh, eight and a half years ago was uh, the primary service areas. How did that develop? And and could you explain for those of uh, list, um, listeners that, listeners that don't understand what that is? I know there's a couple other states that do that too. What what that actually yeah, I'm means? Not, I'm, I'm not aware of the other, the other states do it, but 
I think one of the reasons it happened, and this this happened actually probably in the late 70s, so it was a little before I got into EMS. Okay. Um, and it was because that there would be rival ambulance services showing up in scenes, and they would actually have verbal or even physical altercations as far as transporting patients go. Um, it was uh, it was really not a very good system. Uh, and again, this was back in the time when it was dual service uh, funeral directors and, and ambulance uh, services. So they had a conflict of interest. Um, so I think it was a way to try and deal with that problem, which is um, that every municipality or county or however they define the EMS district is only served by one ambulance service for emergency services. I mean, this is even before 911 came out. Wow. So um, communications were a problem, too, and that's one of the other reasons why I wanted to work on this through an EMSRB to try and standardize uh, communications uh, for EMS, uh, for dispatch, as well as for communication with the hospital. So, so the PSA stand um, happened before the EMSRB then? That was not a Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was I a did, fundamental... I think all the medical directors in the state have been very active, think that PSA law is a great law. It really has maintained uh, a system much better. Some yeah, people would agree with that, but I think it's the right thing. Yeah, I think there's some good things in, uh, and some challenges, too. I, th- I think uh, what I was used to in other states is either a governmental agency would run the 911 and then let the private ambulances do the interfacility. Or there would be, uh, when I was in Michigan, a, a contract for yeah. the, the 911 with a private ambulance, but it would be a, an RFP process, and they'd put right. it out for uh, bid. So that's how they kept uh, you know, the multiple ambulances uh, uh, showing up. I, I think that's uh, a really good feature here is that you, you know your, your area. I think it's been a challenge in, you know, when we've developed uh, critical care ground transport and what that means uh, and was that set up strictly for 911 or was it in her facility both and I think that's uh, some of the maybe criticism that you see of it there are some murky areas there yeah 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 so um, what uh, organizations and associations did you belong to nationally regionally uh, internationally and uh, what do you feel, um, you know, maybe talk about some of those that uh, you've worked on and, and um, what the, the impact was? Um, well, I was one of the uh, founding members of AMPA, so the Air Medical Physicians Association, back in 92 um, at their formulation. The first AMTC I, I attended uh, for Ames was in 1986 in D.C., and that was like, Wow, here we have an intersection of medicine and aviation and yes. nursing and, you know, engineers or mechanics. And it was like, wow, what a great place to learn about it. And um, and I've also uh, belonged to the uh, Australasian uh, Society of Air Medicine in Australia, and I've talked over there several times. It's always great to compare notes because you see how how things are going and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and I've done talks in Calgary for like benchmarking between uh, systems. 
mm-hmm. as well as Europe um, for the uh, their AirMed conference, which happens every three or four years. Um, and by the way, I can give a little plug in Salzburg in 2021 is uh, AirMed 21. So, and Salzburg in Austria is a wonderful place to be and very close to Munich and Switzerland. Excellent. How many have you been to? Oh, Air Meds? Yeah. Uh, let's see. If you count, uh, you know, 1988 Boston was actually a shared conference with uh, the Europeans. So that was my first one. Yeah. In 96 in Munich and 2000 in Stavanger, Norway, and 2002 in Interlaken, and 2005 in Barcelona, 2008 in Prague. Uh, 2011 and uh, so you've been to all of them yeah. I, I I know yeah. and uh, you know both of us were uh, involved in aims of the president now called chair but uh, they always sent the chair but it you know because it's every three years I my two years I I, I missed it uh, oh. on going but um, what what do you think you know when you look at things you've had a lot of international experience what what are we learning from each other what are they learning from us what are we learning from them um, well, um, to me, the optimum um, helicopter system is Germany because they have a helicopter every 50 kilometers, which is actually funded by the Automobile Association, which is also always also an insurance group. Um, but there are so many different systems to look at. I mean, the German system is one way. Um, Austria has a similar system. Rega is a wonderful system in uh, Switzerland, mm-hmm. where they have helicopters stationed strategically. And I think, I think the Swiss pay some nominal subscription fee, which means that uh, they can get helicopter service if they need it anywhere. Uh, the UK and the uh, and the Commonwealth countries like Australia and the UK are are mostly charity based, uh, and that's true in Calgary too. Uh, in Alberta, mm-hmm. uh, and the multiple uh, provinces that started. I think they in. get some government funding in Canada. They get uh, some government yeah. funding, but a lot of it is charity, which is kind of different, very different than the U.S. Obviously, yes. Um, Australia has very has a lot of issues. I mean, because they have vast, vast instances. A lot of their, a lot of their uh, transports are two thousand miles from the northern territories down to Sydney. And uh, so the Royal Flying Doctors and the other Australian fixed-wing services are very unique. So it's a way to look at other services and, uh, you know, what can I do differently? And I think I've had some impact on them as far as what they can do differently, for instance, because I've given multiple talks about blood use on the helicopter. Um, So it's an interchange and a mixing of ideas which really, uh, really upgrades the system everything. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, it seems, just my perspective, it seems like the, they've learned a lot from the clinical application, you know, the types of things that we're doing, um, and then how they organize themselves. I think we've got a lot to learn. Yes, we do. Yeah. I agree. Because we well, have... you know, we are we are in the midst of a crisis now. Because if you look at uh, the the hospital and healthcare blogs, the the accelerating uh, closure of small hospitals is just astonishing. Yes, uh, there are there are small hospitals closing you know five or ten a week. It seems like sometimes, 
Um, and this makes, uh, you know, critical care transport all that much more important for getting a stabilized patient into a tertiary center, you know, whether it's a stroke or heart attack or trauma or whatever. Um, and I just have, as uh, Indiana Jones always said, I, or as, I'm sorry, Harrison Ford always said, I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, because with the small hospitals closing at an astonishing, accelerating rate, uh, critical care transport by air becomes all that much more important. And yet we're at a time now where um, bases are closing. So it, uh, people are going to die. Yeah, it, it, there was, um, uh, there, there seems to be some controversy about, you know, how many bases have closed or has it just been some have closed and they've reopened? Um, right. You know, when you were mentioning, you know, in some of the European countries, they strategically locate. There's not, you know, huge comp uh, like a competitive uh, factor because it's either uh, state-run or charitable. Um, and we're here in the United States. We have a lot of overlap in some uh, states that we have an oversupply. And then, you know, we're a vast country like Australia, too, but then we have areas that aren't covered. Um, any comment on that or any you see any kind of solution? On um, well, no, no, it's a it's a thorny problem, yeah. and um, you know I I don't know where where to go with this because um, you know I'm not sure the federal government could take over the uh, the underserved areas with helicopter service. I don't think that's feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, I don't see a solution to this. Yeah, it's it's hard. The you know the big issue right now, uh, you know that we're seeing lots of articles. In fact, you know I, I put out news and information on Air Medical today, and uh, some people keep hitting me with this. You know, you're beating a dead horse issue, and I say, well, I, I'm not writing these articles. These are things that are real that are going on, and it has to do. Uh, with balance building, billing and surprise billing, uh, that uh, this has become a real concern, and I'm sure there's going to be some type of legislation. It seems fairly bipartisan uh, on it. And um, any thoughts on on that? Well, and you know, one of the problems is is that um, for my specialty, emergency medicine. I mean, by federal law, we're the only physicians that that have to see everybody. Right. We can't turn anybody away. We have to see anybody, no matter whether they can pay or not. Well, so in emergency medicine, since you, since you don't know what the final solution is going to be as far as disposition, um, what they think they might be billed on their presentation is not the same at the end because you found that they are having problems because they've got a aortic aneurysm or... You know, some you know bacterial endocarditis or something weird that's very, uh, very uh, hard to treat or not hard to treat, but extensive to treat. Um, so, so you're going to have so you're going to have surprise billing in an emergency situation. Um, there's not not much you can do about that, but but I don't know what the solution to that is because you know how they present is not you know the insurance deals with the presenting symptoms. Well, how they have 
preventing symptoms does not necessarily follow up as far as what they actually have. Right. Now, the world is, of emergency medicine is very complex. Yeah, because the initial complaint or even on air transports, I know watching crews, it's, you know, they're preparing for one thing and then it's, uh, it could be something totally different. Exactly. Yeah. So, so um, you know, the, things have changed quite a bit since you first got into this uh, industry. You've seen more of the air, big air operators, um, you know, start their own programs, independent uh uh, what they call community-based type programs, and then you still have the um, large hospitals having programs, but you know now with budget cuts, they're even um, getting out of the uh, business or maybe doing a, a alternative delivery type model with one of the air operators. How do you think that's impacted things? Well, just one comment about what you say. I've been in this for a long time. Our son, the psychiatry resident, um, tells Joan and I, and Joan was a flight nurse for 20 years, that uh, we learned Civil War medicine uh, compared to what he learned in medical school. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time. So, um, well, I mean, I think you have to have a compromise between a quality, effective system which delivers good critical care and cost. And I, you know, again, I, as I said earlier, I don't, I'm not sure what the solution to this problem is, but I mean, certainly in, but certainly in Germany, they do that and they do it well. But, but we got to remember that Minnesota is two thirds the size of Germany. Right. right. And <laughs> Germany has 82 or 85 million people and Minnesota has 6 million people. So, um, so that's the reason why we can't do the German model. I think it's we don't have the population density yep. in the places that need helicopter transport the most. Um, so, I don't know what the solution. It's going to take someone smarter than me to figure this out. Uh, probably both of us on that one. <laughs> um, so, uh, you were the. Uh, you had said how you first got involved with Ames going to the conference. Um, you uh, rose and became the president, now called chair, from uh, 2009 to 20, uh, 2011. What yeah. um, what were the big issues at, at that time? Well, you know, 2008 was a terrible year as far as accidents go and deaths on helicopters, medical yes. helicopters. Uh, so 2009, in February, was when the NTSB hearings were uh, in Washington. And uh, I testified at that from my position at Mayo, not from a position at Ames. Um, and so I think the biggest problem as president was that, with the accident rate. Mm -hmm. And what can we do about it? And, you know, what... What can the FAA and the NTSB do about it as far as making uh, helicopters safer? Um, and then the other problems we had were, uh, you know, the division, I think, between um, academic hospital programs versus standalone programs. Um, you know, it's quality issues and, as you said, the balanced billing issues and, and all the other complex things that happen in their medicine. Um, I think those were the, the biggest problems. Yeah, um, yeah, because you took over. I mean, it was it was actually two thousand nine 
in Minneapolis when things really broke apart because of uh, the North Carolina CON. Right. I think, I think 2009 was in, uh, was that Nashville again? Yeah, 2008 was Minneapolis, 2009. 2008 then, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, that, uh, you know, really split things uh, apart because of uh, not being able to enforce CON, and I think that's when, uh, I think it was uh, patient first uh, initially, then it was the Association of Critical Care Transport, um, you know, that, that formed, and now we have a division. Any comment on that uh, turmoil between those? Well, two? it reminds me of two things. First of all, Ben Franklin's statement at the Continental Congress which was... <laughs> We must hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that uh, the the dichotomy and the split in emergency medicine back in the 90s, where the yeah. uh, it was a very similar kind of a conflict between the big groups and the academic centers, as far as, you know, the academic centers, some people didn't feel that, that ASAP was representing them, they were more representing the big groups. Uh, so they split off and formed the uh, American Academy of Women's Medicine, uh, and I don't, I don't think that split was necessarily good. It wasn't good back then. I think they're working better now together, and things are coming together. And I hope that ACT and Hayes can do the same thing, uh, because we're much better if we're united, and we can find common ground. You can always find common. Ground. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. Having been on the boards of both. Uh, organizations and being involved uh, uh, there you know it's probably good 85 90 or maybe even higher percent uh, of the commonality I think things really split right. over right. some of the uh, you know payment and uh, types of uh, uh, services that are offered you know that there's not a differentiation between really kind of ALS air and and true critical care air. Yeah. And then some argue too on the types of uh, types of aircraft, types of equipment, and so forth. But I think there's still um, it, it, it's hard. We're we're kind of a bleep in healthcare in general, and then that's a small piece of what's going on uh, in Congress. And it's hard when you're when you're each trying to say a different message, trying to get things done. So. Yeah, we're kind of a flea on a mole on the butt of the elephant. <laughs> yes, right. Better way of saying it. Yeah. So, uh, Dan, you served as the uh, Ames Public uh, Board member for uh, three years, 2017 to 2019. Um, what was your experience coming back in this role, and you know, how did you contribute as a public member? Well, I could be the uh, the old curmudgeon on the board. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, is, that, is that what you're going to be, the old curmudgeon? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah. well, because it because I didn't have any uh, I didn't have any axe to grind. I mean, I think that bringing my experience of 35, 40 years in EMS and in Air Madison, uh, you know, there's nothing new. You know, we've all of this stuff that we're going through now has we've gone through before. Um, there have been lots of major controversies in air medicine over the last 35 years. And um, I think by working together, uh, we can we can do more. So as a public member, I just felt that I could give the benefit of my experience, although they probably just thought I was an old boomer who was uh, 
you know, mouthing off. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, full disclosure, I, um, I was uh, named as the Ames uh, public member, and I knew Dan had served in that, so I had contacted him, and and uh, we met for uh, coffee and tea, and uh, uh, he... Uh, gave me some some tips which were great and that sort of led to this podcast too but I, I appreciated you taking that time Dan and, uh, and filling me in and I, I think you're right it, it, it is it's like a historical perspective uh, I had my first meeting in Anaheim last month uh, was part of uh, HAI uh, or right before the Helicopter Association International which was right right at the time that the uh, Kobe Bryant's um, oh, aircraft yeah. went down, which was very interesting being at the International Helicopter right. Conference. But it was that kind of perspective and some of the things that they were talking about. And Ames is under new leadership now. Um, and I, I think it's always good to have a fresh perspective, but it's also good to understand the history of how things started and, and why they started um, so that we don't uh, throw out uh, everything. But, uh, you know, my time there at the meeting, too, was, you know, I, I, and, and when I worked at ACT, is I, I always try to, can we start working together on things? Um, I'd really like to see that, and maybe it's um, wishful thinking, but uh, I'm going to keep wishing uh, that we do that. So what do you see as the future for air medical transport in the United States? Well, I mean, I think it's more needed than ever, as we talked about, with the closure of hospitals and access to to, uh, quality tertiary medical care. Um, You know, so it's more important than ever. We just have to have a different model because we're so, it's such a big country and so populous, but the there's maldistribution. That's the problem. I mean, there are vast areas that are, have low population density, and then there's the big urban areas where maybe helicopters aren't as important um, until you get outside the city. But um, I don't know. It's got to. We got to solve the, uh, the insurance problem for sure. Yeah. Because uh, insurance companies are reluctant to to pay. Yeah. What I can go to. Yeah. Well, plus the charges of gone way up. And I think part of that is when these programs started, they weren't billing really the true cost. A lot of them were hospital-based and the charges were the same as ground and they were used more as marketing. And then things have now uh, been pushed way up, I think, by by some of the um, for-profit programs. So it's it, it is interesting. So I, I can't get a Dan Hankins silver bullet of what's the future is going to be. Huh? So can I check back um, in? It's them. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. um, I ran across my mother's hospital bill from when I was born at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. Yeah. For three days in the hospital, her total bill was eighty-four dollars. Wow, wow! And you could that stay, and you could stay 49. three days. Yeah, and you could stay yeah, three. Yeah. yeah. Now it's right. Yeah, yeah. At, so at, I don't know what the solution is. It's yeah. Well, I, I mean, one of the, one of the things is, like you said, we're such a small part of the healthcare thing that whatever they do with balanced billing and surprise bills is not going to just affect transport. Yes, it's going to yes. affect emergency medicine uh, in a major way, uh, and this is why ASAP has been very much involved in. 
trying to sort out this balance billing mess. Yeah. Well, we, we are. I, I, I keep saying that we're a microcosm of the healthcare system. I mean, it's not much different uh, of what we do. You know, it's just that we're doing it in aircraft and, you know, and in, in, in different settings. Uh, but, you know, how the billing and all that works, it's, it's part of the, the U.S. healthcare system. And, you know, we haven't figured out even that with hospitals from for-profit, not-for-profit hospitals. So that we do both or, you know, is, is competition good or is it, is planning better? You know, it's things that I addressed in grad school. So, so, yes. yeah. So, uh, what are you doing in retirement now? Oh, uh, well, one of the things I always did, uh, when I was, uh, working in emergency medicine was I would teach, uh, residents about ballistics and gunshot wounds. Oh. So I've always had an interest in ballistics and, one of the things I do is I I go to the range and I make bullets just to see kind of what's going on and to just maintain my knowledge of what what firearms are and what they can do. Wow. I, I did not uh, know that. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, someone's got to teach emergency medicine brothers about yeah. firearms and gunshot wounds. Unfortunately, more and more um, of a problem these days, you know, with the... Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And... Uh, you know, we have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren now. So wow. that certainly is a good part of life. Yeah, well, that's excellent. I I, I know uh, you and Joni, uh, your wife, uh, do a lot with cats, too. I don't want to comment on that. Yeah, we yeah. rescue cats. Yeah, um, that's we live on six acres, so we got the means to do it. And uh, so we have outdoor cats. So we have a heated garage door with a heated garage with a Entrance, cat entrance in it, and which sometimes <laughs> raccoons come in too. Uh, and then we have cats in the house who never go outside. So, wow. So we had a high of actually thirteen cats, but uh, but Joan's not a crazy cat lady because our grandson, when he was about five, turned to Joan at dinner one night and said, "Not a Joni, you're not a crazy cat lady." And Joan said, "Oh, and Max, why is that? Because <laughs> Grandpa Dan isn't dead yet." So, <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, well, that's 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 wonderful that uh, you guys um, do that for cats. I'm a I, I sort of grew up more of a dog lover, but have uh, got uh, cats, and actually I just uh, got a, a rescue cat uh, a few months ago, so it's uh, been fun uh, with him. So, well, yeah, we've had we're we're dog lovers too, but it's so hard to have dogs when you're yep. away a lot. So, yeah. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed preparing for the podcast and talking to you. And thank you also for being my first air medical podcast since 2011, getting back into this. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's great to be back in the air. And and thanks again for the advice on being the public member, uh, board member of Ames. So thanks. Hey, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Pinterest, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. 
A special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.